from Moby.co, this is the Flagship Pod, a weekly podcast about the stock market, the economy, and the various market forces that power the world around you. As always, I'm your host, Peter Starr, bringing you this time, you know, a week wherein labor just cannot be defeated. We had a lot of up and down signals from the labor market, but finally unemployment came in today at levels beneath where we were when 2020 started, which kind of signals that the Fed's job is not done, which is bad because we kind of want the Fed's job to be done by now, considering how poorly the domestic market and international markets are reacting to Fed policy. To help me sort of untangle this big macro web we have sort of choking out the stock market and the economy this week, as always, I am joined by Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at Moby.co. Justin, man, dude, what's good? Like, how do we begin to untangle this thing? Hey, uh, that's a good question, Peter. Um, As we always say to start the show, I'm excited to dive into all the intricacies and nuances. Um, It seems like every week is getting... Not progressively worse and worse, but there's just more fear on the table, which shows us that we're getting closer to closer to the bottom. The more fear there is, uh, the more like things again are are bottoming bottoming out. Like if you think about the curves uh, of like a normal market cycle, you have markets that are growing in like I won't say pessimism, but growing in skepticism. Then they move into full euphoria. It peaks. Then markets start falling, and people aren't sure what's going on. And then people are panicking. And the market crashes and usually bottoms. And then again, it starts growing on skepticism. So, you know, not obviously great given what's going on right now that people are panicking because there is things to be scared of. But I think we are starting to approach a bottom or get close to us, close to it, if you think about it, just in terms of just like pure, like mass, uh, uh, just kind of overall worriedness. Exactly. And I think for me, the critical thing that happened this week was the S&P 500 finally achieved 25% down from their all-time high, which is a very critical indicator for bear analysts like me who kind of look at bear markets and see what's happened, you know, moving forward from those markers. We'll get into that later, though. But first of all, obviously, you know, we're sitting here in an inflation situation. The main thing driving the market down is the fear that the Fed will just absolutely pump the brakes even harder on the economy. We've gotten a lot of really positive indicators this week from various sides of the labor market saying that, hey, things are going to get better. The Fed's not going to hit us as hard anymore. But then when unemployment comes out at its lowest possible level, like labor stays strong, no matter how much the Fed is trying to weaken the economy like what tools does the fed even have right now justin do we just like raise rates like a full 200 basis points just bring the hammer down and put a stop to this or is this one of those things where labor can stay strong without the fed forcing like in a, a recession on us or anything yeah i mean so the the fed has been moving i mean they're moving quickly it's every single month at this point that they're raising rates but they're also you know didn't raise it from the get-go up 400 basis points or 200 basis points from the initial uh, kind of go at it because they want to put us uh, in such a quick, quick recessionary environment. I mean, their overall goal is to is to reduce inflation ultimately at all costs. But if they can do so while avoiding recession, it's obviously to everyone's benefit. Um, and so they've been slowly raising rates uh, anywhere from fifty to you know seventy five basis points over the last several months. Um, and it's getting to the point now where like. I mean, it's in an interesting scenario because on one hand, the unemployment numbers come out today, they, you know, they drop. So it looks even better. It shows how resilient the U.S. economy is. But globally, there, there's taken a real hit. The, the housing market globally is really slowing down with the, with the rising of interest rates of other parts of the economy that's not doing well. And now there's real fears that we're already in one or moving going to be moving towards some sort of mass recessionary event. So I think ultimately the Fed is is in a very precarious position. Um, they should have moved faster. They didn't. So they're 
they're kind of now stuck in between two areas of trying to make inflation better while also not putting us in recession. I think ultimately what will happen is they will put us in a recession. But at the same time, you know, they, they can't be raising two, 300 basis points because it's just going to create a uh, make a bad situation even worse. So I think they have to continue to move slowly. Unfortunately, it's going to continue to be more of kind of this slow bleed out, uh, but ultimately will set us up for a good period of growth over the next decade. And that's, you know, the whole point of the boom and bust cycle, right? That's why we've kind of consented to almost a century of this sort of neoliberal experiment in capitalism. Like the the bad times are bad, but they're much shorter than the good times. And you get a lot of good growth during, you know, pre-correction and post-correction. And so when I say I'm excited to see that the S&P 500 is 25% down, the main thing I'm excited about is that if you look at sort of the year-on-year returns after that S&P 500 crosses that barrier, um, for every other downturn that's happened since 1950, return are positive a year later. So year and your returns are at bare minimum uh, 10%. There's only one occasion where it was still down 9% after the 25% mark a year later, and that was the 2008 great financial crisis, which I don't think we're at a full on that level unless, you know, you know, Putin goes all the way to nuclear land, you know, more on that later, right? That's the other main thing we're going to talk about today. <laughs> but it's really yeah. encouraging to see that like we've been through a lot of pain, labor has stayed strong. And it's one of those things where, you know, we'll have to keep raising rates, but not maybe in a way that completely just tanks the U.S. economy. We're at a period where we're in the depths of the pain. The bottom, you know, could be soon, could be far away, but it's one of those things where it's really encouraging to see um, that we are approaching one of those indicators that says, hey, the bottom is kind of close at hand, so to speak. You're never going to time the bottom, of course, but it's really encouraging to see that uh, staying the course and being a long-term investor right now, like you're you're already going to potentially see year-on-year returns that are a little bit better once we get through the real depths of it at the beginning of next year and start fighting through uh, what could be the big resurgence of bull territory come the back half of next year. Anyway, though, Justin, it's not just the Fed trying to put us in a recession. Uh, our good friends over in Saudi Arabia are trying real hard too. The other thing that's kind of gotten swept under the rug with a bunch of other news, nuclear war, marijuana um, pardons and all of that has been OPEC deciding, hey, we're going to actually cut oil production by 2 million barrels a day, despite the fact that energy prices are the single thing driving inflation uh, <laughs> right now. So I hope you guys really liked 1975 and, and all of you people who are like real vintage heads, let's let's just bring back exact 1975 level economics and we just get straight up stagflation. Inflation in the US, OPEC raises rates, gas prices are going to go spiking right back up. How do you even react to something like this? Like this kind of like little backstab from our good friends over in OPEC, Justin? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> You, just when things are getting better for the average person, obviously OPEC has to come in and, <laughs> and change it a bit. And for those of you not familiar, at a super, super high level, OPEC basically dominates a lot of the oil production in the Middle East. It's uh, like a consortium of a few countries um, and just overall like kingdoms in the Middle East. Um, and basically, we saw oil prices start to really spike uh, over the summer. In the US specifically, we saw gas prices, depending where you were, anywhere from you know five into the sixes. Um, and obviously that was not good for the average person. Since then, gas prices and oil prices have actually fallen significantly um, to the point now where they're in the threes and fours, um, you know, outside of Europe, which is a whole nother kind of bag of worms, but at least here things have gotten better. Um, and now because they're getting better, the profit margins for a lot of these Middle Eastern producing uh, countries for oil, which is their primary source of income for a lot of these countries, 
has decided to lower their production about 2 million barrels per day in order to stimulate, um, de not demand, but stimulate prices going back up because with less supply and the same amount of demand, ultimately prices have to only go one way. So ultimately that is not good for the average American consumer who relies upon oil and gas for most of their day-to-day -day needs. It's anticipated that prices are going to now go back up due to that. We'll see how much of an effect it takes given where the US government can kind of step in. Um, but over the short run, definitely not a step in the right direction. Is going to add to inflation more. I mean, the only net benefit out of this is that oil stocks and energy stocks are gonna to continue to do well. I think the index is up like 10 to 15% over the last five days. Uh, and so a lot of the energy names and dividend stocks that we've been recommending, you know, they're definitely getting tailwinds, which is great, um, but not great for the overall just economy and, and consumer. And that's just what, you know, what you kind of have to deal with, especially with these OPEC member nations who only really have a one major source of income and are dealing with, you know, the fallout of inflation the same way we are. So the good news audience is, is that we may in the short term actually get Hopefully, good inflation news. The CPI print is next Thursday, October 13th, and that only prices in all of the energy and whatever prices from September. So we got the July print in August, which was really positive. We got the August print in September, which wasn't the best. So fingers crossed we're going to see an improvement in September that will reflect the lower energy prices before this $2 million a day, this $2 million barrel reduction came in, which will make us seem like we're in a much better position than we may actually be, which can kind of stimulate a little bit of a bull period. Because again, the real go time for the U.S. economy is right now. We've got the CPI print on October 13th, and after that, it's right back to Q4 earnings season. And it's one of those things where we're going to be watching really closely to see how well a lot of these companies have weathered inflation. That's too consistent quarters of bad inflation of kind of a recessionary environment and we're going to see how well companies have done in this like how how, how have the cuts at meta impacted meta's profits has amazon managed to weather the storm is apple going to do well despite the fact they had to do you know production cutbacks and not sell as many iphones this year or whatever this is going to be the big time period and it all kicks off next thursday and that's going to kind of dictate how deep of a recession we are in i mean it's it's a classic recession right now, right? Like no one's calling it a recession because the economic board that actually calls it a recession or not has yet to actually declare it a recession. Whether or not you think that is for political reasons is up to you. But the main reason is is because it's not just two consecutive it's not just two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth. It's a bunch of different factors. And again, this is just such a just strange and unprecedented period of decline. There's too many factors to say whether this is a recession or still just a correction from a wild, wild bull run for the last decade, followed by an unprecedented pandemic, followed by all the supply shocks from that, followed by a war in Eastern Europe, and just everything else. And so when you look at that, again, go time is next Thursday. So talking about what's going to happen really depends on this CPI print as it comes out. So instead of just speculating, oh, what's going to happen if inflation's down or how much is it going to be down? We have no idea. But the main thing to speculate on right now, Justin, is how the market is going to react to, to other growth factors. And I think I'm just going to jump to the other side of the topic here. Speaking of indexes that have risen more than 15% in five days, um, every cannabis ETF is up 30%. Our old, our old pick canopy is up 33% after, you know, being way down from our original price targets that we made uh, at the absolute peak of cannabis interest, which was in April of 2021. Jesus. Um, but it's really exciting to see all of this positive news on cannabis because Joe Biden has announced that he's going to pardon every single federal marijuana conviction 
forever, which is basically his way of saying this is the first step for decriminalizing and then legalizing cannabis consumption in the United States of America on a broad base. Of course, the real thing for, you know, the criminal justice folks is purging state issues, but we don't need to get into that. This is pretty solid for the cannabis side of the economy. What do you think about this, though, Justin? Like, is this kind of a head fake or is this a solid indicator that we're going to get, you know, some sweet cannabis taxes and slash or way more cannabis business in the next five years? I mean, at the very least, we're definitely getting some very solid memes uh, and social media play out of it. So I definitely enjoyed seeing that. Um, but in a, on a more serious note, I think this is definitely a step in the right direction. We saw Tilray, um, Canopy Growth Company or, or Corporation, and a lot of these stocks over the last several years really get um, kind of their stock prices elevated outside of the valuation kind of norms um, due to regulatory reform, both in Canada, the US and kind of abroad. Obviously, there's been a, a slowdown in that given what else was going on in the world is just not as much as a pressing factor. And when you see that happen combined with just valuation and multiples get compressed like crazy, those stocks have gotten absolutely destroyed over the last year. And there just hasn't been that much talk on it. So when we see Biden coming out and making such a strong stance on pardoning all these people, which is like, I don't want to understate that's like kind of a massive deal. Um, and then saying that he's going to lay out an actual regulatory reform towards getting this push through. You know, this is a, a very long process, but ultimately is is actually extremely promising for getting uh, regulation curbed back and getting um, cannabis ultimately like out of the classification right now um, of LSD and, and cocaine with you know, kind of the way the US government looks at it. So by no means is this becoming legal overnight and Tilray is going to make and all these other cannabis companies are going to make millions and millions of dollars. But these are these are steps in the right direction on what is a long road towards like an actual reform process. The the only thing that will be interesting to see is how midterms uh, kind of shake out and where the, the next uh, four years of presidency goes past that. Um, this is a multi-year process. And what we saw kind of when Trump came in, for example, was him curbing back a lot of the reforms that Obama had put in. Um, there could be a very similar situation where Biden makes a ton of progress on this. Like a lot of cannabis stocks are are doing really well over the next few years. There's a lot of promise, but then a new president comes in and has a hardline stance on, you know, how the reforms that Biden is trying to put into place happens. I mean, a lot of that is very TBD and unknown. We don't know who's going to win. We don't know what their stance on this is, how much of a priority it is, but we do know that it's definitely a risk factor. So I wouldn't put all my eggs in one basket. We're not Again, like everything steps in the right direction and we're making incremental bets, but we are definitely not saying, hey, you know, this is this is the bet next one. Like, let's go put a massive position of our portfolio into it. Yeah, definitely. The time to buy cannabis stocks is either a week ago or like two months from now, once all of the overbuying mania has kind of calmed down a little bit. If you've been a long-term holder of cannabis stocks like we have, uh, you're still deep in the hole. I'm still deep in the hole. I bought, uh, I, I started working at Moby.co um, the week before we put out our first canopy growth report. And I was like, sick, I'm just gonna, I'm all in on being an analyst here at Moby.co. I'm buying everything. Um, so my first two big buys based on our analysis were canopy growth and desktop metal. So I was humbled pretty quick and I stay humble in terms of our recommendations and making sure that we follow growth cycles and all that, because I'll, I will be experiencing, um, going a little too hard in on speculative industries for a hot second. Um, but we've, you know, we've, we've done good after, after that. It's just, it was really hard to kind of call five year cycles back in April, 2021. Regardless, the other main thing that is, 
clouding our macro environment right now, Justin, is the situation in Eastern Europe. Uh, the Ukrainian army has managed to push 200 more miles into eastern Ukraine in just the last week alone. Um, there's a lot of uh, really interesting concerns happening right now. What's your take right now in terms of where we're potentially going in the uh, Ukrainian war right now, Justin? How do you think we're going to be able to shake this out, or is this just becoming more of a unpredictable situation as well? Yeah, I mean, it is definitely <laughs> unpredictable. I think we're in an interesting situation right now where uh, there is a lot of pride in the matter, which is hard to price in and actually, you know, project what will happen. But at a very high level, long story short, you know, the war is not going the way that Putin originally thought that it would. Um, so he's in a position now where he's kind of backed into a corner where he needs to save face with his internal circle and kind of the the Russian people internally um, and have some sort of win that can't all be a loss for him while also trying to avoid further conflict like internationally with, you know, a nuclear war. Um, so, I, I, you know, I don't see a, a very good scenario where he feels a way where, where he and the Russian people walk away feeling like they they won this. And while, you know, the rest of the world also feels like they walked away, like this is safe and we're moving in the right direction. They're they're very conflicting, especially given the the way the war is going. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's going to play out over the next few months. And I mean, it's interesting to see the U S now start to stockpile, um, some, some, uh, medication that helps fight, um, a lot of, uh, harmful effects of radiation. Uh, if a nuclear bomb was to go off, that's definitely not <laughs> exactly what we want to see. Um, just from an overall kind of like peace perspective, but I mean, this is, we thought it was getting better and now there's a real threat of escalation with nuclear or chemical warfare. Biden came out on Thursday saying that he does not think Putin is joking, like in the slightest. Um, and so obviously that would turn the entire world on its head from talking about inflation and interest rates to just talking about, you know, are we in a situation where the world is going to move forward. Um, and so, you know, hate to bring this back to the investing world because this is more of a, a real life scenario, but there are certain certain ways to play this. Um, looking at defense stocks, continue to kind of um, get defensive there with defense stocks, no pun intended, looking at um, some stocks like in the medical sector that will help from uh, from fallout from any radiation. I mean, there are ways that you can, if you're truly like fearful, this is going to happen, um, that you can try and get ahead of it from that perspective. But I mean, at the end of the day, even if you, you do well, it's kind of a lose-lose a all around. Um, so we'll see. Long story short, we'll see how it plays out. I think it's a little too early right now for us to confidently say, you know, this will or won't happen in any direction. Yeah, the most important thing the market craves is predictability. And the minute you add anything nuclear, even if it's a limited nuclear engagement in only eastern Ukraine, like all predictability gets thrown out the window, right? Like that is a that is a red line you don't cross back. That is a that is a membrane that is breached that cannot be unbroken. So you will see, you know, massive shifts as people divest and sort of like go into more tangible assets. So yes, you can do plays like that. You can be defensive with defense stocks. You can buy Amgen, which is the U.S. manufacturer of one of the most potent and like most effective anti-radiation sickness medications out there, you, uh, which is popping off about 15% today because the CDC yesterday bought about 250,000 doses of said radiation sickness uh, medication. That's not for the U.S., of course. Um, 250,000 doses are not enough to treat any limited engagement that would be in the U.S. That's to help, you know, that's for Ukraine aid, period, end of story, just in case, because the the main threat is that, you know, 
uh, Russia will, as Ukraine advances, they'll just kind of leave a nuke in a semi-trunk in the Donbass region. And once Ukraine finally, you know, pushes them all the way back, kind of just do an FU type style thing. Don't over respond to these reports that the U.S. has lost track of a, nucle a Russian nuclear sub and that is capable of launching in air quotes radioactive Poseidon tsunami that can affect the entire U.S. eastern seaboard. Uh, the U.S. is clearly not preparing for that kind of disaster. And it's one of those things where nobody wins in that scenario. And so what you're going to see is just uh, the continued nonsense in the Eastern European situation where uh, Russia should not have done this invasion in the first place, and uh, they'll probably just dig in for the winter. We're hearing a lot of, like, scary stuff right now because this is kind of the final push before that entire region of the world completely shuts down around about uh, middle of November. Having actually lived in this region, let me tell you, winter's super weird over there in that it, like, it's a light switch. You go to sleep one day, it's just kind of cold outside. You wake up the next morning and there's six inches of snow on the ground and nobody told you it was coming. It's literally just it flashes over you, right? So you can clearly see that the Russians are starting to dig in and sort of like set up battle lines, and there is going to be no motion once that happens. So we're in a period where people are pushing really hard so that the winter, um, they can be in an advantageous position once spring hits again, but this is going to lock down real quick and just completely just shut down for a couple of months while, um, you know, the classic Eastern European force of winter you know, locks it in. So I wouldn't worry about anything getting too hot right now. Things are actually going to get very cold, very slow. But that does mean that this conflict will probably continue at least into Q2 of next year. So it's going to be one of those things where it's going to still be affecting, you know, our overall food supply worldwide. It's still going to be affecting energy prices and everything else. So stay the course, be defensive, but uh, you probably can't actually on a portfolio basis profit off of this because of the amount of losses you will see everywhere else despite the fact that you were you know you're buying amgen buying defensive stocks that sort of thing is that a good view of it justin or is that a little bit too cynical you think no i mean it's fair we're we're in very interesting times right now it seems like every week something new pops up in the news that makes us more fearful so i mean i'm excited for things to reverse is you know it i hate to use this cliche saying but things typically is are darkest before the dawn. So I'm, I'm hopeful things will turn around, but um, obviously given what's going on with Russia, given what's going on with inflation, given what's going on with just, you know, seemingly every negative thing going uh, sideways right now, it definitely feels like uh, there, there is certainly things to be fearful of, but um, again, we're taking long-term Alex on this. So um, you just got to, you got to have that mindset because again, when we look back in a few years from now, or even a decade from now, there's going to be a lot of opportunities that you wish that you had more conviction in um, and that you held through. There was a stat that came out recently that actually said um, the if you sold on the way down um, the 10 biggest rebound days over the last 10 years, um, then your returns got got cut in half over you know a decade plus period. So in other words, um, if things are going down and you ultimately sell the way down because you're fearful, those huge days, just 10 days alone on the biggest recovery days that you'd miss if you sell, um, you end up over a, a decade period getting your returns chopped in half. So it just adds further conviction that you should be always invested in the market and not be taking, you know, name or taking money out just because you're you're fearful that things won't rebound because, you know, history has shown us they always do. And it's one of those things where if you take that long view, you're always going to win, which is why, like, I'm going to 
lapse back into the short term real fast here, audience, just so we don't get too bogged down thinking about, oh, <laughs> big, big spooky things happening on the macro side. Sometimes you can see short term trends and profit long term from them, which is why I'm really excited that we got our analysis out about Porsche when we did. If you managed to uh, be on the international exchanges and grab some of this Porsche stock that went out last Thursday, biggest European IPO of all time, super huge dud. But then the market was like, wait, this is actually super cheap. And people have been gobbling it up ever since we released our analysis. The stock is up 11.66% in the past, what is it, uh, four days? Like it's popping off currently today. So very excited to see that the market realized they were undervaluing the stock, despite the fact that um, Porsche is a saw. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I don't care. I'm sorry. I'm not a car guy. Um, you, want, <laughs> if you want me to pronounce things right? You should be giving me medicine names. <laughs> um, and that's, the, that's where all of my pronunciation brain is currently but justin what do you think about this like is is poor still undervalued or is this sports just kind of like finding its actual level now that it's trading at 92 euros per share as opposed to 80 at the beginning of the week yeah on our site we we discuss it a lot more in detail so it's a little hard to to go in depth right now but we definitely have a lot of conviction in porsche over the or porsche to your point <laughs> over the long run who cares um, european words are made up no yeah, I mean, I think the technical way is is Porsche, but as a, as an American, it just feels weird saying that. Um, but I mean, yeah. So long story short, like we definitely like the stock. There's a a handful of reasons that we're not going to dive into for the purpose of a podcast here that we again discuss on on the site. Um, but long story short, I mean, they're yes, they're not growing as fast as Ferrari and not growing as fast as Tesla, and their margins aren't as much, but they're also being valued significantly less. I know seventy five billion dollars for an IPO feels ridiculous. But if you're looking at their their multiple, whether it's on their EBITDA, revenue, you name it, they're they're actually being slightly undervalued. Um, and they actually have a really good long-term push strategy into going into EVs. They want 50% of their revenue um, by 2030 uh, to be from electric vehicle-related sales. Obviously, the multiple you get on that and the margins you get on that are significantly higher, especially in the luxury vehicle segment. So I mean, if they make pushes in the right direction, not only, you know, in five years from now, but also just showing progress now, uh, not only one will they grow and just their company will be worth more, uh, but ultimately they will just get a higher multiple on the same exact revenue. So we're really excited for what they can do over a multi-year period right now. I mean, outside of like energy names and super defensive names, like no stocks are doing well. So it's not surprising to see things selling off uh, for Volkswagen specifically, this was very much a liquidity play, spinning out a company, getting you know billions of dollars seemingly overnight for just having it as two separate entities. Like totally get it, even if the company isn't being valued a ton right now, they'll grow into their valuation and help Porsche not only now but over the long run be able to kind of build out the infrastructure needed for what they're looking to do. So long story short, definitely like the play. Uh, if you want to see more on it, definitely head to the site. We give a lot more details like price targets um, and, and some other stuff that you know definitely good to check out. It's very exciting for me because Volkswagen is the biggest car manufacturer in the world, and they have stated with a lot of conviction for years now that they intend to go toe-to-toe with Tesla on the EV front of things, and this IPO, now that it's becoming way more successful in the last week as opposed to when it first came out, has given them about a $10 billion war chest with which they can just buy a big pile of lithium and start beating Elon Musk with it at a time where Elon Musk may look like that he has to literally sell a huge chunk of Tesla stock to finance this Twitter deal that he's been forced into, and I'm amazed we actually hit time 
time before we could even talk about that, Justin. Uh, it's a it's an honestly wild week in the markets, right? Like just a yeah, lot of I mean, interesting, a lot of interesting, interesting things happening. The the main thing I just want to get in here real quick is that there's going to be an absolute bloodbath battle for the raw materials to make EV batteries, and Porsche being successful right now is an indication of that. Volkswagen now has the money necessary to really go toe to toe in sort of these buying markets for lithium on Australian markets. But uh, an interesting winner here is actually going to be the United States of America and specifically the state of Idaho, because we just got approval to start opening up more cobalt mines in the state of Idaho. So more analysis on that coming. Cobalt is one of those secret ingredients to EV batteries nobody ever talks about. Everyone's so obsessed with lithium when the real big dogs are going to be cobalt and nickel as well. And it's really exciting to see the U.S. being a competitive mining power in this ongoing war as well. Next step is getting a little bit more mining for uh, lithium in West Virginia, but that's a little bit tougher given just how badly West Virginia has been damaged by the coal mining industry. But if we can pull it off, that would be sick. Um, but it's really exciting to see we're going to be, you know, Australia is going to rule the lithium wars of the next 10 years, but America is going to be a big, big player in the cobalt space. And we'll have more on that for you next week. But like Justin said, there's a lot more detail and other analyses on Porsche over at uh, Moby.co. If you want to actually like get a free trial, see what our analysis is like up close, you can go to Moby.co slash go and see, you know, what we do week over week over week to make sure that we can help our audience attain focus in the market and make sure that, you know, you're not timing the market or anything, but you have a more focused perspective on your portfolio so you can make, have the confidence to grow your portfolio over time and achieve what the stock market is there for, which is achieving long-term wealth and long-term security in your financial growth. Regardless, Justin, we, uh, I, I'm amazed we talked about what felt like nothing, but we still talked about it for half an hour. Uh, we're very, very close to time here, Justin, technically over time. Any, any final thoughts from me before I go ahead and read the credits here? Again, there's a lot more to cover, but a lot of the inflation stuff is going to be, you know, us talking about it next week once the CPI drops next Thursday. Yeah, there's, to your point, I mean, there's a lot more I, I would love to talk about, but we only have 30 minutes here. Um, I think the last thing I just want to briefly touch upon, because people have been asking about it, and it is on the front page of friggin' every news website right now, um, but it is the Twitter Elon stuff, so I will briefly, briefly go, go over time and talk about that quickly. Um, so for those of you following or just not super sure, uh, basically, obviously, Elon came in, um, they reached a deal um, to to buy Twitter. Uh, and then Elon, for a handful of reasons, decided that he wanted to back out of the deal after he signed it. Um, so over the last few months, they've been going back and forth, back and forth. And it got to the point where Elon realized that he was not going to win in court. Uh, he signed the deal. They had to go forward. However, a lot of his financiers to ultimately get this deal done are no longer comfortable given a lot of the risks associated with the deal and kind of just the overall volatility with the situation. And due to that, now... I mean, he's in a really interesting position because he has to buy this company that he clearly doesn't want to, and he doesn't have the capital necessarily to do it anymore. So he either, A, needs to find new uh, like people to finance this, which is seemingly going to be at definitely worse terms for him, or he's going to have to liquidate some of his own, um, his own equity, whether it be in Tesla, SpaceX, and a secondary sale, you know, you name it. Uh, but take some serious money off the table, which as investors, no one really wants to see. Uh, plus, it just creates another distraction for him. I mean, it's hard to be the CEO of Tesla, of SpaceX, <laughs> of, you know, the Twitter, of a thousand other companies that he's involved in. Um, the, the line has to be drawn somewhere. So long story short, this definitely is not super encouraging for Twitter. It's not super encouraging for any of the companies he's involving. It's just more of a distraction. I mean, over the long run, he definitely can potentially work it out and we'll see how it plays out. But at least in the in the very short run, if you're trying to buy the acquisition 
uh, price. There's a lot of risk baked into that for the Twitter deal. If you're looking at Tesla, there's also now incrementally more risk if there's going to be severe like drawbacks from liquidity or sorry, severe drawbacks of like equity uh, of Elon stakes. So this is an ongoing situation. We are, we are definitely not adding to our position now. Um, Want to see how this shakes out. There's there's a little bit too much risk in it for us. But uh, Justin, just to really, really qualify that real fast. Um, again, we're probably going to cover this a lot more next week. Once this we get a lot more clarity, again, the actual trial for this Twitter situation is set for 10 days from now. And there's so many moving parts right now that this whole letter might have just been a delaying action since Elon Musk historically does not hold up well under deposition. We'll get into more of that next week and probably even have a whole analysis on it. But a lot of our audience is right in the same boat as you and me are in which we are sort of we, we bought the Tesla IPO we've been you know adding to our Tesla position and riding that high since you know things really started popping off when the at the end of 2020 during that bull run obviously we took some profits last at the in November of last year because once Tesla hit a trillion dollars that was like oh it's a little spicy but is this one of those things where we should really consider <laughs> taking more steep profits or should we just kind of hold the line and wait this one out you know <laughs> like is this one of those things where we could see you know a really bad like uh, difficult to recover from kind of downturn if he's forced to do a fairly significant liquidation yeah i mean it's it's a very good point there definitely could be uh it really just depends on the magnitude of the liquidation how much capital he has to draw out over what time period, like there's just so many moving pieces, even if he has to do it, how does he do it? Or does somebody else come in and help out? I mean, you know, it, it, we were going to, to your point, going to need um, some more clarity into the situation and, and see, you know, over the coming weeks, if not months, uh, how this plays out. Exactly. And one thing I think nobody's talking about is that he has probably a much easier path to liquidate some of his position in SpaceX because that's not going to destroy his public reputation and his actual money, which is the publicly traded Tesla stock. And there's a lot of shares that he can make play out in the SpaceX situation. And does he really benefit from owning SpaceX? I mean, he barely even runs the thing anymore. That's Gwyn Shotwell's entire operation. So if he's going to actually liquidate something, he's probably going to either A, you know, sell Neuralink while it's still kind of a mystery and like not as high as he wanted to, or get rid of some, some of his ownership of SpaceX and kind of like turn that over to be more of a air quotes public concern run by people outside of like the Elon universe. Again, we'll see, but it's one of those things where, you know, kind of examine your position and see where you are, but understand like the risks on the, the Tesla's stock is going to get weighed down for the next who even knows how long. It's going to be a very interesting period on the market. Could create a lot of value if he actually follows through with his X brand and turns Twitter into the everything app, which is something the United States has been interested in trying to develop for the longest time contenders for a while where everyone from uber to like a weird combination of lyft and doordash and snap um, but it's interesting to see if he's forced to buy twitter if he can pull this off but again that is a temporary value destruction that leads to potentially a lot of value creation over the next five to ten years we'll have to see though either way justin we have gone massively over time any other final thoughts before i go ahead and read the credits again really excited we managed to go through as much of this detail as possible dude yeah, so am I. Um, no, I think that's it. We're we're definitely over time. A lot more, again, I'd love to discuss, but um, we we have a lot of information on the site through the app. Obviously, connecting with us one-to-one -one via Discord is a great way as well. So if you want inform more information, there's, there's plenty of resources. If not, you know, we'll see everyone next week. Awesome. And audience, as always, thank you so much for sticking with us till the end here. Just so you know, audience's podcast is produced, hosted, and voiced by me, Peter Starr. All of the intellectual value from this podcast comes from our analysis team, which is headed up by CEO, co-founder, and my co-host here, Justin Kramer. If you have any questions for us, you can either hit us up at hellomobi.co or in our Discord, where this is actually hosted live, or you can ask questions live in audience with us, and I try to address them as best I can throughout. You never actually hear people asking questions, but 
actually happens live here in Discord. If you have any other questions for us, you can also feel free to find us over at TikTok and Instagram where we're actively posting as well. Otherwise, sign up for our email list because we the main thing we have is our massively growing daily updates email that comes at the end of the day to give you sort of the analysis you need to understand what's happening in the market day by day by day because we are very much in a day by day by day situation as a lot of these very slow moving parts of the U.S. economy start moving very, very fast, especially once the starting gun of mayhem in the markets hits when the CPI drops on October 13th. That's next Thursday. Regardless, audience, feel free to hit us up in any one of those channels. And regardless, we really appreciate your time. And as always, we'd like to leave you with peace, love, and incremental gains. Everyone be well. Thank you so much.